Hello and uh, welcome to the very first episode of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows. Uh, I am the director, owner of Snow Pro Ski School. We're based in the uh, in the Port de Soleil. Um, and the purpose really of this, this uh, podcast series is to interview interesting people from the world of ski instruction. So uh, um, I'll be interviewing a series of people uh, over the following week, people with different ideas about skiing or, or might be doing something innovative in our industry and um, and that's really the purpose of this. So uh, without further ado um, I introduce to you uh, Phil Smith of Snowworks, Snowworks based in Team um, and I had the chance to sit down with him and um, and have a very nice conversation with him when he was at the Welsh Championships in Team um, just last week. So uh, here we go. All right, I'm here with Phil Smith, Snowworks. How are you? Pretty good. I had an amazing day. Oh my God, there's been so much snow. Absolutely fantastic. So it's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be with you, Dave. Well, welcome to my part of the world. I live just down the road in Valdilier. I'm looking out now onto the beautiful Don de Midi. The sun's going down. Looking out over the Stade, uh, Le Crozet. And um, yeah, conditions are fantastic today, aren't you? So you are here, as I understand it, you're here for the Welsh Championships. You have your boys downstairs mm, we have three boys we've come across it well we've got a bit of a team here um, we've got three our own three boys Luca Freddie and Zach and we always come to the Welsh Championships because um, Robin Kellen who is uh, runs the Welsh Snow Sports Association is a good friend mm-hmm. and it's great to come across and support him and I used to work here I used to work here as well <laughs> a long long time ago so it's great to come back to Somewhere I worked in my early 20s. Lovely to be here. Early 20s. Okay. So, now, so, now, so here we go. So I'm last night, I was up at 2am because I thought, okay, I'm interviewing Phil tomorrow. So I've got a bit of a mind map here and lots of topics. So topic one, we might as well start with this. The old days. Now, why I wanted to talk to you about the old days was because you know when all of that Simon Butler stuff was going on, when it was causing a lot of... Uh, social media um, storm, if you like, uh, amongst the, the, the Basie crowd. Um, I remember you posting a couple of things here and there that was about the old days when, let's say, the rules weren't quite so um, uh, defined as they were, you know, we were talking about Eurotest rules and all of that sort of thing. In the old days, as I understand it, you just there were a couple of you pioneers that came here to France to set up ski schools and got on with it. That's right, we did. I would love to know more <laughs> about that. Well, <clears throat> um, there's some very interesting stories, but, um, you know, we we were born into a, a Europe, and um, in our sort of late teens, what would that be, 1978? I think my first winters were in 1978. But just prior to that, there were a lot of tour operators working, um, the, the school tour operators at schools abroad. Mm-hmm. I know they don't exist now, but or, the, or they've been changed. You know, the names have changed. They've been brought over. But schools abroad, Hormont, Skibound. Those were the main school operators. And they were bringing lots and lots of children across to France and Italy, other European resorts. And at the time, um, a lot of these school tour operators were struggling with the service that was being provided mm-hmm. in the resorts. So <clears throat> they believed that they could... Um, go out and they could employ British ski instructors and bring them out. So it's more like, you know, like Club Mediterranean, you have the um, 
the the instructors that come in that, that stay in the hotel that work, see the all the school kids in the evening they run yeah, extra yeah. activities in the hotel so there was like a big, ski, exactly there was a bit in ski exactly there was a big market for British ski instructors yeah. at the time and of course um, Britain had its qualifications France had its qualifications um, Italy had their qualifications um, but at the time there was no system of mutual recognition at all mm-hmm. so um, <clears throat> it seemed everybody seemed to be in the frame of mind that we could move around quite freely. Okay. Um, it was a, a, a united Europe. Mm. And one of the main things about being in a united Europe, as we all know, was the free movement of the workforce. So these tour operators started bringing in their own skin instructors. You know, at the time, the um, Basie Level... Well, it was in the reverse. In those yeah, it was one, two, three. Basie right? Level 3, yeah. 2, and 1 was the highest. So a lot of Basie Level 3s. And it was booming. It was absolutely booming. Um, but at the time, everybody was quite happy with it. I mean, France were very busy, mm. all the French ski instructors were very busy. And actually, not many people knew this, but France could not keep up okay. with the demand for lessons. So France was having to employ lots of ski instructors that did not actually meet their own regulations. You know, come <laughs> Christmas, New Year, half term, yeah. Easter. So they weren't basically in the late 80s, no, late um, 70s, early 80s, and the mid 80s, there weren't enough skin instructors to go around. Okay. So everybody was working quite happily. All the French skin instructors working, the Italians were working, and the Brits were coming over and working. And they were cool with that at that time? Absolutely cool, because you can't go and stop somebody from working yeah. when your own house is not in order. No, no. As such. Yeah. So there was a blind eye turned to it. But then what happened, I have to get my dates right, it was probably around the late 80s, the training of French ski instructors had caught up with the demand Mm -hmm. for lessons. Okay. Okay. So they got their own house into order. They were able to meet the demand for lessons. So it meant that only um, the the French ski instructors with the appropriate qualifications mm-hmm. um, considered by the Genesis Sport yeah. um, could go out and teach. So they had to get their own house in order. Yeah. And then once they did that, then they started to stop um, other um, countries from working okay. um, because they felt that they didn't have the right qualifications to work, which is a very interesting story. Yeah. And how did, and, and at that time, presumably, so you were right in the thick of it at that time. Yeah, we were, we were right in the thick of it. And how did that manifest itself? So what happened, um, you know, Basie had its own system of training skin shots, which was excellent. Um, and it's catered for um, the British uh, demand um, very, very well. We, like most countries in the world, there was um, uh, a three or four tier system at the time, basically a three tier system. Mm-hmm. You know, your level three introduction to skiing up to sort of intermediates, level two intermediate skiing up to advanced, and level one obviously advanced race training mm-hmm. and stuff like that. <clears throat> but the French um, believed um, that you needed to have a qualification that matched theirs. Okay. And that is what was the crux of the matter. Mm-hmm. So, it, it was a difficult period because the, the the French authorities wanted to stop the British ski instruction and other na- nationalities from working, mm. but they themselves and Europe did not have any form of recognition. Didn't okay. exist. So it was in, so it was, we were pioneering um, recognition. It just didn't exist. Mm. So. There, there was it was not possible to stop people from working. You can't go and stop people in Europe and say, "Well, you need a French qualification." Mm. That isn't in the 
you know the 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 spirit of the European Union. Yeah. Um, so, but that's what they started to do. They started to stop people and say you can't work because you haven't got French qualification. Mm. Well, they knew that wasn't going to stand up in a court of law. No, no. Because it would go all the way to Europe. So the um, British skin structures were start started to um, they started to prevent British skin structures from working, mm. which meant at that point authorities needed to get together. Yeah. So the French and the British authorities needed to get together to negotiate equivalents. Yeah. Just prior to that, <clears throat> myself and a couple of other skin instructors decided that this is Europe and Bayesian qualifications should be recognised throughout Europe. Mm. So we set up a ski score. Yeah, we set up a ski score. And we had to, there was three of us, uh, myself, Ian McKellar, Okay. Um, not far from here. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. And yeah. Hugh Money. Okay. Not far from here. So the three of us set up a ski school. And that was a, a French, a, a, a business in France? No, no, it wasn't. So no, it was a British ski school, but operating Yeah, it was a abroad. British ski school operating in France. It was mm-hmm. a British ski school operating in France. And we were prepared to take it all the way to the European courts. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to fund that ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened, we had a European lawyer who was very interested in the case, obviously. So we took on a European lawyer and we started to fund that case. It was going to go through to the European courts yeah, yeah. Um, for full recognition of all three levels, basically level three, two, one. Huh. But um, <clears throat> the authorities decided to get together quickly yeah. and try to form a mutual recognition where everybody would agree the levels, mm-hmm. which is pretty complex to do. I'm trying to head you off at yeah. the pass. In, in sort essence. of, but it, we've, we've got some other issues um, uh, which cropped up, and one is a cultural issue mm. and the, the, the way that ski instructors are trained. So if you take British ski instructors, mm. um, now we have four levels, yes. level one, two, three, four, um, and that works very well for Britain. Um, you know, America, CSIA, Canadian Ski Instructors Alliance, yeah. they all have three or four levels. Mm-hmm. France only has one level, yeah. fully qualified. That's right. And prior to that, it's trainee ski That's instructors. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it was quite difficult to fit a two-tier system, we just say, well, it's only a one-tier system, mm. really, trainee ski instructor and fully qualified, and get equivalence with a four-tier system yes. where your lowest tier, the level, well, in Mm. Britain it would be the level two is recognised as a competent ski instructor so the the countries didn't match so um, it became quite complex there were a lot of people that felt that um, uh, Britain should have pushed for full recognition of their whole um, structure and other people felt um, when you're going into another country even if it's in Europe Mm. that there are cultural differences that you have to try to work with mm. so obviously people were split in their beliefs on that and remain split to this day I believe I, do, I, I, I have to say I mean I've spent my time I've, I've spent enough time living in France yeah. and Switzerland to, yeah. to kind of understand their position mm-hmm. and my understanding of their position is you know we were if I'm a if I'm a Swiss or I'm a, a, mm-hmm. a French guy who's born in one of these mountain villages you grow up you're doing race <clears> club you're doing ski club whatever and for you Things like the Eurotest aren't necessarily that difficult to achieve, mm-hmm. you know, or you know, within reason, um, if you've come through at a decent mm-hmm. level through ski club. Mm-hmm. But it's also a question of tradition, especially mm-hmm. with regards to the the Kolski Francais. They really, you know, and also the the, the Kolski Swiss. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you know that 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 red jacket means a lot to them culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition, 
there's a question of continuing employment. What do these guys do in the winter if all of a sudden the market is flooded with, with uh, you know, guys from I don't know, Poland or mm-hmm. Romania or whatever? You know, in in a, in a similar way to you mm-hmm. see happens to the market for I don't know plumbers and builders and whatever in the UK. In right? the UK, and the, and I think that's their fear. Is it if they don't, that if they don't keep fear. that? I think, I think there's two things. One is, as, as you rightly um, stated, that culturally um, there are clubs of sports with young children at school who join the race club and um, they are getting to a high level of racing. They move into regional squads um, and then from the regional um, racing to the national racing, there's a high dropout. And then, so the journey splits at that point. Yeah. You've got the young racers who ski to an incredibly high level mm-hmm. that then move towards ski instructing yes. or security to piste. Yes. And then you've got the racers that continue towards the French team. Mm-hmm. So this system has worked very well for local people in the ski resorts. For an incredibly long time. Exactly, for a very long time. Which means the local children that don't make it into um, earning a living in ski racing Mm. can branch off into ski teaching and earn a living in ski teaching. So we understand that. We understand that. And... um, But, as you said, this Mm. happens in the UK as well. You know, we have... Um, towns, villages, cities, people come in. Mm. You have your shop. You may have been born in that town, but somebody from outside is going to set up a shop next to you. Yeah, so the British mentality is to compete. Mm. The British yes. mentality yes. is to compete. Yes, yes, you know, okay, I've got competition. I'm going to need to make my product better to survive. So that's yeah. the difference You're culturally. Right. You're right. British people compete for their business. Mm. Whereas the French culture is you train, you get your qualification and you have a right to work. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, there's, there's a big difference and hence the, you know, the reason why Europe has been very difficult, a very difficult journey for some uh, countries like Britain. Yeah, and yeah. That's, that's hugely interesting because I've, I've also had, I've read something similar to that. It's, it's a sort of Anglophone culture thing. You know, if you're American or you're British, it's kind of, you know, aggressive. We're looking forward to tomorrow. Kind of, what can we do? You know, what's next? It doesn't work like that here. No, they live no, for the day, you know. No, they're, they're, no. They're, um, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, it's, they work hard for their qualifications. For sure. And they, you know, the French qualification as a skin strike is very difficult to get. Mm. Uh, they work hard for it. And they feel once they've got that qualification, they've earned the right to teach. And, and let's not forget um, that they only get a couple of cracks at the Eurotest yeah, yeah. a year. Oh yeah, yeah. And if you, yeah. you know, I've seen those guys in the yeah. in the hut, and they're under a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know, and, and I understand it. Mm-hmm. I understand. But there are people also in the, you know, that run French ski scores um, that have a different mindset. Mm. You know, they they see the British model, four tier system. They like it. Mm. You know, because the, the French model is, um, you know, is very pro. The instructor. It's very difficult to run a business in France. Yes. <laughs> very difficult to run a business in France. I hear that. So, but if you're um, a worker, you know, you can earn a good living. Mm. Okay. In the Britain, um, it's the business owners that earn mm. the best living. That's right. So, it, you know, there is it's obviously a difficult balance. There's a, there's a clash, as we know, a clash yeah. of cultures. Absolutely. And um, I think that's a lot of what it comes down yeah. to. Yeah. And it's just understanding, as always, understanding both sides. Yeah. And then trying to, you know, if you can, trying to get middle ground. I always felt with the, 
the French and um, British scenario of ski teaching, both sides needed to try to find the middle ground. Mm. Um, but, you know, for many people, that wasn't the idea. You know, Britain has got um, qualifications, they've got a structure that suited them. They felt they were in Europe, they felt that, you know, mm. their qualifications should be accepted throughout Europe. Yeah. And that's the European ideal. But with countries with such different structures, um, the European Union itself has had difficulty mm. trying to find a solution to this issue. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. And you're full time in team. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So, so you go, because I, I feel that the guys who live out here all year round understand this cultural difference slightly better, as opposed to, say, the ski school guys that come and go. I think so we, I mean. we understand um, local people. But um, you see also, how it all kind of yeah. interrelates. Yeah. You know, the we guy do. that you see on the slopes is also the guy that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, you get around to do, you know, your roof or something mm-hmm. like that. And I've noticed certainly that up here in these small mountain villages, it's very, very important to play a bit more of a political game. When I was younger, <clears> I'd be kind of, you know, I would do that anglophone thing. If someone crossed you, you'd go for mm-hmm. them kind of thing. But I think as you get older and wiser and you spend more time up here, you realise that it's important to kind of keep everybody on side. It works better that way. Life works better. I think better so, up very here much so. You know, you can have rules and regulations and laws, um, but at the end of the day, you have to get on with people. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter what the law is, you're moving into a small mountain village, you've got to get on with those people. Yeah. They, you want acceptance. Um, so, you, you know, if you can find a way of working with local people, it just makes it mm. much, much easier for everybody. And why not? You know, most of the resorts we go to, most of the resorts we go to where we do our travelling courses, we work with um, uh, local people. Like when we go to mm. St Anton, yeah. we work with the Aldberg Ski School. Okay. So yeah. we have, and we work with them. So our arrangement with the Aldberg Ski School is we work 50-50. I have 50% of um, our ski instructors mm-hmm. and I employ 50% of their ski guides, their mountain guides, mm-hmm. and we work together on the off-piece courses. When we go to Chile, I use a local Chilean mm-hmm. company. When we go to Spain, I use a Spanish mountain guide okay. um, to work with our instructors. When we go to Japan, I use a local Japanese mountain guide and so on. You can do and it, it makes sense. These guys know the mountains. Mm. So if you can create local relationships, it, it's good news for everybody. Really, so um, it's, as, and as you say, I think in the early days, a bit hot-headed, arrive, you know, I've got my paper, yeah. I've got the work to, to I've got the, the, the to right go. to work, yeah. and it doesn't matter, I'm just going to get my clients and I'm going to teach and that's it. Yeah. But, you know, you have to get on with people, you've mm. got to get on with people. No, so it's only as you sort of get a little bit older and a bit wiser, I think you learn that developing relationships is the way forwards. Mm, I hear you. I hear you. I've still got a lot to learn in that respect. Um, okay, well, let's use that as a nice segue. So, so you look like you've got some great... You, the, the direction of your business, you do a lot of the traditional things. So you teach skiing. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll come to philosophy later because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hugely interested in, in the way that you think about skiing. Um, but it looks like you have plenty of options where you take clients and you, and you travel with them. Which I, I think mm-hmm. is a great, great idea. Um, tell me a little bit more about about that. Well, about I think how that came about. Yeah, we, we started. I mean, again, it's uh, going back in history. You know, when we first started, everyone skied on piste. 
Mm-hmm. You know, just so the people that lived in the mountains skied off piece. You know, we skied off piece as instructors. Yeah. Right, we've got half an hour at lunchtime, let's go and do that off piece um, route off the back, or a uh, day at the weekend, let's go off piece skiing. It's a bit harder than the skis yeah. were like two cool. minutes, 20 long straight. Yeah, my slalom <laughs> skis were 203. Um, so, yeah, so you had, really to ski off piece, you had to really live in the mountains. So, the um the the market there wasn't much market for off piece skiing, and then um you know everybody remember this snowboarding came along mm. and um, snowboarding um just transformed the whole market you know we owe a big thanks to snowboarders yeah <laughs> yeah because they were just having so much fun well yeah. so much fun and they could travel places mm. yes so um you know and skiing was losing out. Mm. Made no bones about it, you know. The manufacturers going, ski manufacturers going, hang on a minute, what's going on here? People were switching to snowboarding, mm. you know, it's more fun, less rules, less regulations. Didn't have to snowboard a particular way, mm. you know. Skiing at the time with ski schools, the way ski instructors worked with their clients, it was very regimented, mm. very fixed. You know, there was um, national identities were taught. You know, if you went to France, you ski the French way, if you went yeah. to Austria, you ski the Austrian way, and so on. So, whereas these guys just strapped a plank on their feet and went off and had so much fun. Yeah. So, I don't know if you remember the first off-piece skis I remember. I think it was Rosnell Bandit came along. Mm. Rosnell Bandit. At the time, if you look at it now, yeah, 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 yeah. No. <laughs> it looks antique, but at the time it was revolutionary. <laughs> Wide skis, over 80. In fact, I think the Rosnell Bandit was 74 millimetres underfoot, or something like that. Most skis were around about 67. Yeah. So 74, 75, I think it went to, it might have even been 80. Yeah. I can't remember, but 80 millimetres underfoot, that was a fat ski. Big ski, yeah. yeah. Do you know, I've got a funny story about the bandit. Um, there's a guy who, oh, what's his name? Duncan someone. Uh, he's a naval architect. Anyway, he rocked up uh, on the level four, the Basie level four, and he, he was a, he's an amazing skier. Um, Duncan, if you're listening to this, I've forgotten your surname. But it was hilarious. Every day he turned up with a different pair of skis. And one of the days, one of the days he turned up um, with his wife's pair of Rossignol bandits on the level four. <laughs> his examiner was Jim Lister. And it was, oh, it was hilarious. Like he turned up and the guy was like, Jim Titton, when are you going to take this, when are you going to take this exam seriously? And it's like, well, I'm ripping on these bandits. Yeah, exactly. You know, they're like 25 years old, but I'm still yeah. doing it. It's like yeah. So, so the next, you, so that the was next fairly day, recent. Then. Well, it was fairly recent. Yeah, it was. It was honestly, it was a scream. And uh, but the next day, he turned up on a pair of one nine three GS race skis. <laughs> like, oh, will these do? Oh, it's, yeah. It was a scream. Fantastic. But anyway, yeah. So go on, carry on. You're you're yeah. old. So uh, so the, the, the ski manufacturers started to make wider skis, basically. Yeah. And I and they were going shorter, more cut to them. Obviously, side cuts came in, and um, we started to notice a shift in the market. You know, we there was a, an interesting stage where we had people turning up for, on courses with fat modern skis with big side cuts short mm. in the same group as people with, you know, skis two metres, yeah, 65 mil underfoot, yeah. straight, absolutely straight. And I don't know if you remember back, I remember vividly um, the World Cup uh, ski racing. And I, now, I can't remember the exact date. Um, this happened, but I remember racers turning up to races with two sets of skis, an old straight ski yeah. and a new shorter calf ski, mm. not knowing which ones to use. Yeah. And there was one season where we had this crossover. So we all had to get through that. I remember buying, mm. um, I bought eight sets of um, 
blade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, short one meter blade. Yeah. And I bought eight sets of what was called a Rosnell Power Air at the time, which was about a 160, big mm. fat ski with a huge sidecar. Okay. And we would take all our clients out on these skis and we just. Everything that we'd ever learned at ski instructors was going out the window. Yeah, you course. know, bank over, inside hand on the ground, mm. um, ski, you know, feet wide, just get big edge angles, the ski's coming around quickly. Mm. You know, it was, re- it was a revolution in skiing. And that was a particular year. And that just went on from there. Suddenly, people were finding skis that they could start to venture off piece. Yes. So we started to develop our first, what we called all-terrain courses, mm-hmm. where we do an intro off piece. And then that developed into off-piece courses, which were an out-and-out off-piece course, yeah. which, you know, um, we hadn't done before. So, and our associations weren't training ski instructors of how to teach off-piece. And did that, that wasn't the market. Yeah. And did that lead to the travel then? Yeah, and then what happened, um, from the off-piece, we started to move into backcountry, mm-hmm. um, where we wanted to go over the backside of the mountain, um, into... Uh, much further away from the the resort boundaries, and then um, we looked at travelling. Um, so we started to bring in um, exotic places. We went to um, Chile, um, Argentina, um, southern Chile and Argentina, into small ski stations, which on the side of volcanoes. We went to Kashmir, obviously Japan, you know Turkey. We and you know, and the main thing about the traveling, it wasn't just about the skiing. You no. know, it was about again, it was about culture, it was meeting local people. Mm-hmm. Amazing trips, and that's continued. So we've got this whole program of what we called adventure skiing. Mm. You know, now this year, for example, we've got Japan, we've got Norway, we've got Iceland, we have Kyrgyzstan, we have Turkey, um, and Amazing. still the the southern volcanoes in Chile in the summer. We're racking up the air miles. <laughs> it's interesting that because I've said that to a few people lately. You know, you get that question often. People mm-hmm. say, "What's the best ski resort you ever skied in?" And I've often tried to answer that question. But for me, as with a lot of other things in life, you think about good meals you've had and whatnot. It's actually about the people you're with and the the time you have. So I've got some great memories of being mm-hmm. in certain places at certain times. Um, and I'm sure skiing's like that. It's an individual sport, but there's a social element to it too. If you're out with your buddies and you happen to be, you, you could be anywhere, mm-hmm. you know. Um, <clears throat> you know, you could be in these small resorts. Like yesterday, I was mm-hmm. in City, I was in, uh, in, in La Dole, which is just on the other side of Geneva. Um, I had a great time. Small resort, one lift hill, you know, but the people you're with is what makes Incredible. it. It's yeah. not necessarily like, you know, you've got to be in a certain place with a, a certain name convinced of that mm. convinced it's about the the, the the people you're with and the experience that you have 100% definitely and you know like people ring me up and they say you know what's um, what's the snow like in Chile so it's huh. white and it's, it's slippery it's slide on it right? <laughs> it's fine <laughs> you, know? yeah. you don't go to southern Chile yeah. to ski the same snow <laughs> as you could get in a, no. in a resort just down the road um, in Europe, you go yeah. to Chile for the experience, the yeah, people, sure. the company, yeah. you know, to meet Chilean people, to learn about their culture, yeah. to go up mountains and ski places which are completely different. And it's the same in Japan, you know, um, everywhere that you go, um, Kashmir, it's an amazing, Gulmarg in Kashmir, what a destination to go to. Um, but so, well, you know, the adventure skiing is completely different. Mm. And um, it suits particular people that where the experience is everything. Yeah. You know, the experience is everything. 
because if you just want to ski mm. then you know jump on a, an EasyJet flight or and get out to Europe quickly and you know get to a resort close by and get skiing but if you want a, an experience mm. you know an unforgettable experience which is going to last a lifetime I'm going to get on that plane and go to Chile yeah, or Kyrgyzstan really, or Kashmir or Japan yeah, yeah that's good because it was one of my topics it says what are you doing that's different from other ski schools you know what are you you're not just teaching skiing day after day you know what is the what are, what are the other things that you're well, doing and this is clearly yeah. part of that what right? we did um, a, a long long time ago I actually um, went to our clients and said why do they come skiing with us hmm. and um, <clears throat> you know I really asked them that please you know if you can spend half an hour you know list the reasons why you come skiing uh, with us and it divided quite neatly into three areas the feedback was and those three areas were quite equal mm. one was to improve yeah the other which you've already mentioned is to ski with like-minded skiers mm-hmm. at a similar level so yeah. you can travel around the mountain together and experience the mountains together and the third was to go places where you wouldn't go by yourself yeah. so for you know local knowledge and uh, ex- experiential so we've got learning yeah. we've got experiential and we've got social reasons and, and that splits quite equally and so that's what's led you <coughs> off into the various yeah yeah so we try to want. so we try to cater for those three needs mm-hmm. people that want to improve you know that them that's their main focus booking of course to get better mm-hmm. people that want to um, go skiing with other people because you know what it's like um, in Britain if you reach a, a particular level yeah. of skiing sometimes it's difficult to find people to go with yeah. you know everybody's got busy jobs and they've got families or whatever you know they've, mm. it's quite difficult to find people to go with yeah. so if you can then go with a company mm. um, that you know you will be immediately be in an environment where there's other people that ski the same level that have the same aspirations, the same desires, bang, you're in. So it's more yeah. of a sort of a club setup. That's cool. Um, and then the third um, area is more of a safety issue, um, which is, you know, you don't go up to the top of the mountain, look over the back to untracked off piece and go down it by yourself. Mm. No, for sure. Yeah, so, you know, these people want to go off the back of the mountain. Mm. They want to put skins on and go ski touring and access amazing off piece areas, um, but they want to do it with somebody that knows the area. Yeah, and um, that will keep them safe. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, so we we try to hit all those three areas with our program. Okay. Very much so. That's interesting. Okay, good. Well, let, let's then let's let's move on because I I think that's it's really really I like that I like that idea mm-hmm. and I don't think probably enough <coughs> businesses do that. I did it at the end of last year. I did it in a slightly mm-hmm. different way. Um, in that you go to your customers and you say, you know, you ask them the questions mm-hmm. that they want, want asking, uh, want answering. For example, last year. So last year I asked all of our clients. I said, what do you know? I asked them specific questions, not necessarily in, in well, I asked them the usual questions, you know, you're happy with what we've done, blah, blah, blah. I asked them some very interesting questions to do with who notices our marketing. What is the gender of the person who notices our, our marketing? What, who is the gender of the person who makes the decision? Is it a joint decision? Is it a, the person? Is it a family decision? Hugely interesting information mm-hmm. to see actually where, where your clients come from, who decision makers are in, within those units. and that. It, it's, mm-hmm. I think I can't imagine that some of the more traditional schools around here are doing that kind of thing. I don't um, think so, no. I think the, the concept of a ski school is you arrive and get a lesson. Yeah, that's right. 
<clears throat> that's the concept. And yeah. Interesting enough, although you know the market is changing, I'm sure that most associations, most uh, governing bodies that train ski instructors are looking at the market and thinking, you know, are we changing with the market? Mm. Are we looking? What do our customers want? What do ski instructors need to deliver these days? You know, how do they work with their clients? Is it a case of just standing in front of a group and giving mm. some technical information, some technical advice? Or is it more than that? You know, you hope we, the associations <clears throat> yeah, are doing yeah. that. You hope so. Um, yeah, it's interesting to, it'll be interesting to see how they do evolve in that, in mm-hmm. that respect. You know, we've got some great um, models in our, in the British Association of Ski Instructors, Snow Sports Instructors, mm. some great models. One of those, um, Moston's uh, teaching styles, you know, mm. based on decision making, yeah. who makes the decisions, you know, and Ski Instructors in the early days was very command led. Mm. You know, the client skis down, the instructor looks at them, they tell the client what to do, how to do it, when to do it. The the client does it and the instructor gives them feedback to yeah. say whether they're doing it correctly or not. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Classic loop, yeah. <laughs> so command style, but, you know, the, in the, um, uh, the learner-led lessons, and, you know, in your business as well as mine, where, when we run private sessions which are learner-led, mm. you know, it's fantastic. You know, the client arrives, I say to the client, you know, what can I do for you? <laughs> it often blows it often blows my mind. I was up just the other side of that hill about two weeks ago with a group of my adults who who all know each other and they will they'll come up and ski with me. And um I they seem to be conditioned to want that old school command mm-hmm. approach. Yes. And I said, Well, why don't you you guys you just work together? You go down and do that, watch each other or something. You know, try and, mm. I can't remember what they, the official, I try not to use the official kind of busy words or whatever, but the, the you know, just trying to, to get them to think about their skiing in a different way mm-hmm. or teach them in a different mm-hmm. style. And you'd be, just sort of, you'd ask them a question <laughs> about something. What do you think about this? They're just, nothing. Just absolutely nothing. Well, it's like, come on, you guys, come on, this is a, this is a two-way process, you know? We're not... I, I'm not just going to hit stand here and bark information at you because well, it's not really go, what you know. There's, we'll there's go, another. Yeah, there's another. Yeah. There's other ways to do that kind of thing. Yeah. People will go back to education. <clears throat> you know how children are taught in school. Mm. You know, and as we know, there's a big move to change education. Yeah. You know, if you look at some of the Scandinavian countries, mm. um, their educational system for children is very different right. to the standard approach to education in the UK mm. and in France as well, because our kids did go to school in France, although we um, worked out private arrangements for them now. Mm-hmm. But it's very command um, style. It's very um, uh, teacher-led. Yeah. You know, the, the pupil arrives at school, they're told what they're going to do, and they're told how to do it, and then the work is corrected. Yeah. So discovery learning is gradually um, erased from them. You know, we know children like to learn by discovery. That's how they learn. That's right. You see, you see it all the you time, know, don't you? But by the time children arrive at adulthood, yeah. quite often that process of discovery has been lost. I'm a relatively yeah. new father. You, you know, mm. you've been down this road before, and mm-hmm. much more experienced than I am. But I'm a new father, and I, I, I greatly believe in the value of the, the the child trying to work stuff out for themselves. Totally. The struggle is important. <clears throat> they have to have the struggle. Mm. Um, because it's how you overcome things mm. in the future. You know, your life isn't always going to be put mm. to you on a plate. You've got to, you know, you can guide them in the right way, but they've still got to 
it, it, there's a huge value in terms of coming to the, the answer yourself as opposed to someone just feeding it mm-hmm. to you on a spoon. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, that's hugely Very important. much so, very much so. You know, we're facilitators of learning. Mm. You know, ski instructors facilitate learning. But as you say, <clears throat> you know, we're going through this period in education where people arrive for lessons and their perception of a lesson is to be told what to do. Mm. You know, not be t- to be taught how to learn. Yeah, you know, hang on. I don't want to go through this process of being <laughs> shown how to learn. Just tell me what I've got to do. Yeah, of course, we know learning is not as simple as being told what to do. Mm. Um, you know, we can guide people. Um, certainly, we can come in and say, right, you know, try this here. Mm. Um, you know, but which will bring us back. I'm sure we're getting into this discussion um, in a minute, which is about the mountain environment. Yes, and how that affects the way that we teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, the, the, having good discovery skills, having what I call a good divergent approach to learning um, is an absolutely essential in skiing because of the nature of the sport, yeah. uh, because it's so variable and so changeable. And um, coming on to one of our favourite topics, which is learning open skills mm. for an open environment. Um, and you need a very divergent approach to do that. So divergent learning, you know, and discovery learning. Mm. And... Um, as far as skiing is concerned, to become a really high-level skier, mm. you know, you have to get involved in this kind of learning, for sure. Otherwise, you will just plateau. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree with you more. Hi, it's Dave Burrows again. So, um, very interesting podcast so far. It's really interesting to hear... Um, Phil talk about some of the history of uh, the early days of ski instructing um, especially in around this part of the world where he was and um, then in the second half we go on to discuss uh, very interesting philosophy that he sort of works by in terms of uh, clo- open and closed environment and, and then one of the biggest things that I got out of this uh, at the end which was um, to do with uh, judged and measured performance so I, I found that super interesting and I hope that you find that interesting coming up uh, um, enjoy the rest of the podcast and uh, see you on the next one bye the all right well let's 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 segue nicely into into the, the, the technique aspect. Um, I, you did a, I'm sure someone interviewed you recently. I saw mm-hmm. you on a video somewhere. Planet um, Ski, Planet Ski and J2 Ski. That's right. Yeah. And I saw you, I, I saw you talking about your, your sort of own, own philosophy. And I've got, I've got a little Saturday club that, I wouldn't say has a similar philosophy, mm-hmm. but, but the philosophy is it, of it is, Whatever the mountain gives us on any given day, we will go and learn the techniques to manage that. I'm not going to give you one specific way of skiing. We're going to go and you know do what we need to do to adapt to those conditions. And I think personally, when you, you, you learn in that way, it makes you a much, much better skier, for example, for when those kids go and ski for the school or they go and do something like that in gates or something. They've got a broader range of skills at their disposal other than those kids that have just raced gates, 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 gates. How does that compare to what you are teaching your clients? Very, very much along the same lines. 
Um, you know, I'd love to claim it as our own philosophy. I really would. <laughs> There's no, I don't think anyone owns anything. To no, I'd like. You know, quite often we put catchy terms to things, mm-hmm. and um, so that. Um, we can market them and give people a, a better a tool for understanding. So um, we uh, particularly use the term um, going open mm-hmm. and working with open environments. Um, and it's, it's a very interesting subject because we had to get involved in studying other sports. So um, we looked at other sports and the nature of other sports and we started to um, term the sports as open or closed or a mixture between the two. Okay. So we have this sort of spectrum of sport. One end, sports are very open. Yeah. And one end, uh, sports are very closed. Um, many people in sport will be familiar with those terms anyway. But many, many uh, people that come in skin are not familiar with those terms. So mm-hmm. it's quite important to understand them. Um, so very, very quickly, so an open sport is where the environment is changing all the time. Okay. Yeah, so everything's changing. It's never the same. So, so ski racing <coughs> could be classified as that quite It easily. could be, yeah. yeah. But so, so that people would understand, take it to some other sports which are incredibly open, so it's rugby or football. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if, you're, if you're playing a football match, um, once that football game kicks off, no one's ever in the same position twice. No, that's right. You know, everything yeah. changes all the time. The ball moves completely differently all the time. It's never kicked the same distance or the same mm-hmm. amount. It has the same spin on it. Um, the tackles, people tackling. So um, that is an incredibly open sport. So m- all team games are open sports because okay. not only do you have your own team members who are always changing, mm-hmm. and okay, you might get tactics to sort of have an understanding of how you're going to play, um, but you've got no idea how the other team's going to play. No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then you've got... Um, so that's team sports, but you've also got sports like surfing, mm-hmm. where the waves, no wave is Never ever the same, same. unless yeah. you, you're in a wave machine. Mm-hmm. Um, no wave is ever the same. It always breaks differently, the height, the speed of the brake, uh, and things like that. Um, um, you've got other sports which involve the weather, okay, like windsurfing, mm-hmm. um, you know, sailing, okay, so the wind is never the same. Um, so lots of these sports, they're very, very open. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got closed, where the environment remains the same, the environment. So you've got no other team members, you've got no opposition, mm. and the environment is constant. So let's take running in lanes, indoor running in lanes. Okay. would be yeah. closed. Mm-hmm. Or swimming in lanes. Swimming in lanes mm. is a closed sport. You've also got some highly technical closed sports like figure skating mm-hmm. you know singles figure skating I mean pairs figure skating they'll try to close down yeah because um, you need to know what your partner's doing yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you've got um, high diving gymnastics mm-hmm. you know these are all very skillful sports incredibly skillful but they're closed mm. so now what differentiates open and closed is how we perform um, in open and closed sports mm-hmm. and there's some key differences so in a, a sport when the environment is changing, as you mentioned uh, about the mountain, you have to change with it. Mm-hmm. You've got to change with the environment. Yeah. So your movement patterns are completely var- variable. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you, you might make a movement pattern, and that movement pattern will never re- be repeated again. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a one-off. Yeah. It's a one-off movement pattern, you know, like playing football or going in for a rugby tackle. There might be rugby tackles that are similar, yeah. but none are identical. No. Okay. Um, so the movement patterns are varied all the time, depending on the environment that you're meeting. 
So, whereas in a close ball, the movement patterns are similar. So mm. a front crawl is a front crawl. Yeah. A breaststroke is a breaststroke. Back crawl, back crawl, butterfly, butterfly. Mm-hmm. No one confuses those strokes. No. They don't get mixed up. So a butterfly is clearly a butterfly <laughs> <Yeah>. stroke. <laughs> but within well, that sport, there is scope for them to... What would you call What's the word? Um keep saying this is uh, perfection more yeah. like the you know yeah, yeah. you can you repeat that movement technique. until you've got yeah. it so down that you're the fastest That's you can right. possibly be yeah. so it's a completely different yeah. way of working you hone your skill that skill is repeated and repeated and repeated it might become more accurate more efficient mm. um, so until it's the best it can be um, but it's a honed skill which is repeated yeah. whereas in an open environment there are no skills um, that are identical no. or, or nearly identical you know the variability is immense but it's, there's also decision making so we've got two things one of the movement patterns mm-hmm. open is variable closed is repetitive to a certain extent whereas the decision making is key as well and this is the absolute key mm-hmm. in open sport decision making is instantaneous mm-hmm. you're having to make decisions on the move while stuff is happening to you. Yeah. In a close as the picture changes yeah, exactly. in front of you. Yeah. As it changes in front of you. In a close sport, the decision making is predetermined. You already know what you're going to do before you do it. Yeah. Because nothing's going to affect your performance. No. So so you go through this mindset, right, this is what I'm going to do. You know, I'm just so, going to execute that yeah, to I'm the best of my execute. ability. Yeah. So a high dive. And you'll see everybody going through their mindset with a high mm. dive or, you know, the uh, ski jumping the you know um, gymnastics everybody's going through that mindset their routine before they do it so then they can go and execute it mm-hmm. now the interesting thing is just to move on a little bit when we ask our clients we go through this um, about open and closed sport give some examples mm. how they consider skiing to be everybody mm. says open okay. everybody when I ask the same clients their perception of how they learn to ski Everybody says closed. Okay. (laughs) Right. So we got a system which is built around closed sport Mm. in an environment which is clearly an open sport. Very much so. Hence, we have in skiing something which has um, been there for many, 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 many years, which people talk about, which is called the intermediate plateau. Okay. Now, I have never heard of an intermediate plateau in football, or <laughs> rugby, or squash. I've yeah, never heard of an intermediate football. plateau. <laughs> 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 but the intermediate plateau is something mm. in my years, as when I was learning skin strikes, it used to be talked about all the time. Oh yes, I've hit the intermediate plateau. Now why is that? Why do people hit an intermediate mm. plateau? Well, it's clear the intermediate plateau exists when the environment becomes more open. Okay. Okay, so it's sort of the tricky red run, black run stage. It's almost like the skills that they've learned in a certain exactly. uh, fixed environment yes. have run out. Exactly. Now, um, I mean, you can learn, okay, we know we've got piece machines. We know they when they go out at night time, they're going to piece the nursery soaps. They're going to piece the blue runs, mm-hmm. green runs. Sorry, green runs are going to get pieced. The blue runs will get pieced next. Then, if they've got time and it hasn't snowed, probably most of the red runs, but not all of them, mm-hmm. and they may have to leave the black runs. Mm. Okay, so this is where the mountain for most skiers going on holiday 
moves from what we would call closed to open. And the blue runs essentially stay in reasonable condition because they're not too steep. And you get to red runs, that's when they start to lump up snow and you get uh, sort of moguls, ice. Moguls, ice, you know, they're narrow... Um, they, you know, they haven't been bulldozed in the yeah. summer, so you know the grading changes camber, a yeah. lot. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a lot of variables. So yeah, so if if people are learning a fairly repetitive movement pattern in the early stages of skiing, mm-hmm. that will get them through to the sort of red run stage. But difficult red runs, they're going to plateau out unless you know people can still you know because skiing isn't just about you know having good skills technically. Mm. Um, you know the mental approach so if, if, if people are very fit and have a good positive mental approach even if they learnt in a fairly um, mechanical way a fairly repetitive movement pattern they can still probably hammer through <laughs> and get down Forcing. most yeah. things you know like if you've got a square peg and you want to put it into a round hole if you hit it hard enough it will still go in mm-hmm. okay so some people but nervous people people that you know want control um, rather than bravery, mm-hmm. um, you know, they will plateau mm. because suddenly the, the, the techniques they've learned don't match the environment. Exactly as you said yeah. on your Saturday club, you yeah. know, let's see what the mountain's got. How are we going to work with the mountain today? Mm. Um, so that that was key in our philosophy. Okay. Open skills for an open environment. I like that. I like mm-hmm. that a lot. It's, it's clever. Mm-hmm. Um, but within that framework, you're still teaching skiing, right? Are you still... Absolutely. So you're not in the... Because... How do I explain this? Um, you're not in the you, that open close. It's such a kind of uh, a different concept. Mm-hmm. Part of me sort of said, you know, in the back of his mind, I said, "Oh, this guy's just an old hippie." You know, mm-hmm. he's going to he's going to be next. He's going to tell me <laughs> next. He's going to tell me to be the ski or mm-hmm. something like that. But I don't think it's that, is it? You're you're saying right because you, when you're up here, let's mm-hmm. say you've got a guy who is, you know, on top of the the fairly steep stad that we can see here, and you still have to teach him which movements work mm-hmm. and when, what to deploy at what time, so that he you've can still ski got that the skills. to the you've best. Got the skill. So you're not, you know, it's not I, completely yeah. earthy. No, no, no I prefer to think of it as a skill-based uh, development mm. rather than um, manoeuvre-based skiing mm. or skill-based skiing rather than manoeuvre-based skiing. I, I think that might sum it up for people. Okay. So <clears throat> let's take a particular skill. I mean, in our own association... We've got these skills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's the, all, all the skills that everybody needs are within the structure of the British Association of Snow Sports mm-hmm. um, uh, instructors, for example. So if we take one skill like, let's take edge control. Mm-hmm. Edge control. Well, there you have it. It's edge control. Mm-hmm. So you would learn the ability to control the edges of your skis. Mm-hmm. Now, as we know, edge control is infinitely variable. Mm-hmm. You know, the amount of edge they use how quickly you use your edges, how long you use them for, you know, whether you use um, one ski or two skis. So there's, there's a huge amount of variation. So the key is to develop edge control. And then we've got um, the rotary control, mm-hmm. you know, so we learn to rotate our skis. Um, again, infinitely variable, the amount of rotation, the speed of rotation, um, rotate one ski, both skis. Mm-hmm. And then in our association, I mean, we use some different terms in our own um, organization but mm. they use pressure control yeah so although and the uh, pressure control infinitely variable different ways of applying mm. pressure you know how much pressure lots little how long do you hold it for yeah. and then the 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 blending of those three skills rotary control pressure control and edge control is infinite so each one of those is infinitely variable in itself 
and actually put the three together they're infinitely variable for me I'm I'm often (laughs) often drawing graphs in the snow bar charts almost to to to, because I think the, the part of it is the why why would I use certain things mm-hmm. on that slope over there? Why would I want quite a lot of rotation mm-hmm. and not much pressure mm-hmm. and a little bit more of edge mm-hmm. here and there? Mm-hmm. Why would I do that? And for me, the, making that connection in the client's mind mm-hmm. between you know what they're faced with and why or what they should use at any given time, you make that connection, all of a sudden a lot of the anxiety to do with skiing goes away, I've noticed. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah, you've got the skills, and we know <clears throat> that the mountain is so open that if we take those th- three skills mm. um, that we've just spoken about, edge control, rotary control, and pressure control, mm. um, different parts of the mountain um, need a different emphasis on each of those skills. Mm. So, and if clients haven't learned them, then they haven't got the skill. It's like it's <clears> often know, the knowledge yeah. gap that is actually the knowledge the, gap. The, the, I think that's absolutely key. You know, when you do a, a, a paddy course, mm. you know, in the, uh, scuba diving, people have to have knowledge. Mm. <clears throat> you know, the instructor just doesn't jump in. Um, the water <laughs> all their students catch me jumping let's in. have a go yeah. I mean the first part of the paddy course is in the classroom yeah you know it's in the classroom <clears throat> so knowledge is power sometimes so just to understand that there's three um, mechanisms that you need to um, three general mechanisms that you need to learn to steer your skis mm. you know you need to learn pressure control skills you need to learn edge control skills and you need to learn rotary skills mm. you know I, I've had numerous conversations I mean things are changing but I remember going back in the time and I remember an instructor from a particular country coming to me and said Phil you know this, uh, this uh, uh, you call it twisting yeah? <laughs> yeah why do you do that you know why do you get your clients to twist skis and I remember saying to him well because they need to be able to get around the mountain yeah. and he said but you don't use twisting because he was from a manoeuvre-based association. This is going back quite some mm. time. So I said, well, how do you stop at a drag lift? He said, what? What do you mean? <laughs> stop. You just stop. <laughs> you just stop. You just do it. Yeah. Well, you do this yeah. perfect parallel yeah. turn into the drag lift cure. Of course you don't. Yeah. Everybody uses twisting. So we had this conflict. You know how ski instructors are, were trained. Yes. You know, it's very manoeuvre-based. You ski down, you demonstrate a manoeuvre. Mm. And that, obviously... I mean, if you've just been assessed on your manoeuvres mm. and your demonstrations, you're going to think that's what ski teaching is. Yeah. So you go out and teach your manoeuvres. clients how <laughs> yeah. you were assessed. Yeah. You're actually teaching your clients to pass a ski instructor exam. You're not actually teaching them how to ski. I think there's a lot of people yeah. out there doing do that. that. Right they, do, they do that. They don't. Yeah. They don't make the connection between no. the deeper understanding yeah. of skiing yeah. and passing yeah, that on. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. it's you know it's, it's completely different. And I think ski instructor, you know, ski instructor assessments have to change. Mm. You know, I'm sure they're already changing, but I think in order to, <clears throat> you know, get a more individual approach, more client-led approach to learning, then the way ski instructors assessed. Yeah, needs to be looked at as well. Couldn't agree with you. Yeah, couldn't agree. <clears throat> Very with you. much so. The the I I mean I've been we haven't discussed this yet, but mm-hmm. I, so I've recently been through <clears throat> the, the Swiss system. I've kind of translated their, their all of their mm-hmm. textbooks into into you know uh, into English and back into French for, for various reasons. But the, the, the long story short is the Swiss. I think sometimes are still a little bit stuck in a very formulaic way of mm-hmm. doing things. If you look at their their um their books, for example, that they use, you know, the Red League stuff that probably you were still using back in the day, 
you know they're all very like oh if you can perform this this mm-hmm. this and this you get this medal <clears throat> and I think there's a bit more to it than that you know the, 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 it's about passing on that 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 understanding to your clients so that when they're caught in a situation you know tick mm-hmm. tick box uh, drills on a on, in a book mm-hmm. is not going to solve no. their problem when they're stuck up there. Exactly. You know what's going to solve their problem when they're stuck up there is 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 an understanding of what they should do and when they should do mm-hmm. it, when they should deploy these skills. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's my personal <clears throat> philosophy behind it. Anyway. Absolutely, and you know, ski instructors are you know their assessment um, they are assessed on specific criteria, um, and it's te- often technical criteria. It's yeah. in my opinion, it's too technical. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got to be able to ski at a certain level. Yeah, I grant you that. But the levels that we have to ski at to pass mm-hmm. those exams mm-hmm. are way, way in advance of, of, mm-hmm. of the majority of the times mm-hmm. that the clients that we speak we ski in front of. Yeah, we, or, we or have to question to. ourselves. You know, mm. is, but I would be. Yeah. I, I'm in all of these things. I've never seen enough focus on teaching no. and understanding. Never. No. It's almost as though if you ski to a high enough level, you can become a ski instructor. Yeah. Yeah. So, and but that's historically. Obviously, as you, as you stated before, there there is safety issues involved. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we are in um, going back to um, uh, the terminology we used before. We are skiing in a very open environment. Mm-hmm. So, and ski instructors have to be able to um, ski to a particular level. Uh, you know, which is different to you know we've got this thing uh, with coaching. You know, like a swimming coach. You know, when was the last time? I mean, I, I remember learning to swim. I never saw the swimming coach jump in the water and show me how to do it. No. <laughs> you know, so you know, uh, in when you're in a, a more closed environment, often the coach is standing at the side. In fact, mm. I remember one of my greatest ski coaches because I was a racer as well. Mm. I never saw ski. Ah. Yeah, he he went around a, um, a ski a skidoo or a, um, a ski, <laughs> what, what are yeah, those? Yeah, yeah. Went around yeah. on a skidoo yeah. or something like that, and um, he would be either be at the top of the course, halfway down, or um, at the bottom. I never actually saw him ski. Mm. I didn't even know. It didn't even. I didn't even know if he could ski. But he was but good enough he had to translate his ideas. Amazing words yeah. of wisdom. Mm. And that's what I remember. I didn't need to... I mean, let's face it, when you're a ski racer, are you actually going to watch your coach? No, often. I mean, I've, I've got a few... I've got some young kids now. I was just over in... Uh, I was in Villa, I was telling you earlier, like, uh, some of the kids that... You know, I was going through the park and they can do tricks. Oh, of course, like, amazing. I couldn't do that. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there comes a point when you as a coach, where your client becomes better than you. Totally. And totally. you have to kind of be humble enough to accept that and say, okay, well, I can still see what I can see. Mm-hmm. You know, I can still kind of make improvements to you, but I can't demonstrate that whole picture to you because you are better than me now. And that's, that's, I, mean, that, I think that's be, hugely interesting. Yeah, there thing. has to be a, a level of competence, especially in our business, because we're mostly off piece skiing. Mm. You know, so all our staff have to be able to ski to a very high level. Yes. You know, so we've gone into that market. So our, our instructors and coaches and guides, they have to have a high level of performance because mm-hmm. they're backcountry, they're off-piste. They, you know, you've got to be able to move around the off-piste quickly, mm-hmm. um, safely. Um, so they have to ski to a good level. Mm-hmm. Um, but So, yeah, you can see why there is a high emphasis on technical performance for ski instructors because they're out in the mountain environment. Yeah. But I still think, exactly as you said, that... Does there need to be a higher level of focus on the teaching skills? 100%. Yeah. 100%. And yeah, and more. And the technical skills we should really just take for granted. 
Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, they mm. should be there, right? Yeah. But 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 definitely in, in all of the time that I you know, I was going through Bayesian and also then into into Swiss side, I just don't think there's enough emphasis on teaching. No, there isn't, no. and that that is Bayesian's you know, leading the field though. I think in, yeah, you know, having split um, their mo- into when they split into a modular system, mm. you know, and uh, they develop their their teaching modules, and you know I was in, involved in Bayesian at that time, mm. and those teaching modules have a very good content, yeah. whether it's coming across, whether it's been delivered, whether it's been used, whether it's been assessed correctly, mm. whether there's enough importance being placed on it, but the actual content is very very good it's mm. there so it's there no and it's um, valued it's used, valued yeah. amongst all the, the Swiss yeah. schools around here that are, are taking yeah. on British guys they yeah. they get good feedback from their mm. teaching I think British maybe the because British skin instructors you know we haven't come from an alpine background we haven't gone through club to sports we haven't become ski racers so we're much more familiar with a mindset of a learner oh I couldn't <laughs> agree oh my good yeah I've been banging on about this to mm. anyone that will listen if you are a French or a Swiss you learn at two years old. Yes, exactly. You're on skis, or Italian, or whatever, mm. but you don't know what it's like mm. to be me when I was 14 years old mm-hmm. and I learned to ski. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like to be rubbish, mm-hmm. <laughs> and these guys don't. Have no idea. No, they were just really good like, skis. from two and a half and years so they, old. They don't have an empathy with, mm-hmm. let's say, you, the client, mm-hmm. who's finding it difficult because. Mm-hmm. So, well, why can't we do it? <laughs> well, as you say, they were born with skis in the feet, so it's natural as walking. It's hugely yeah, interesting yeah. that that yeah, point, yeah. That, that that empathy isn't there, and I, I mentioned yeah. that to my and guys. It's the same in football, the isn't it? If we look at football coaching, mm. you know, some of the top um, football coaches now mm. are not coming no. from a background of being a top class footballer Absolutely themselves, yeah. and they are being valued. Whereas in the old days, you know, to be a top class football manager or football yeah. coach, you had to have competed yeah. at a high level yourself. It's true. That's changing in football, you know, and. Um, you know, ski racing still has that, you know, to be mm. a top coach. Not so much in America. No. Because they're more into, um, you know, discovery and learning and coaching. They're more into the philosophies that we're talking about mm-hmm. that we're discussing here. But at a European level, mm. you know, because um, they're used to high performance. You know, if you, if, you, if you are coaching racing... Well, then you must have been a good racer yourself. You see it all the time in yeah. the ski clubs, don't you? Yeah. All, the, exactly. all the guys who are running ski clubs are ex, ex, ex racers themselves. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Ex-racers. And all they're doing is, to, I'm sure there are some that are doing more, and there's mm-hmm. some very, very good coaches around here. Mm-hmm. But a lot of what those guys are doing is what was passed on to them just from their coaches. Just regurgitating the game, yeah. It takes a brave person to move outside the box. Take somebody who has, um, you know, um, uh, that they want to move outside the box. They mm. want to learn stuff, not just repeat what they what they were taught. Yeah, it takes a brave person yeah, to do that. Yeah. All right, I got two more, but I realise that you've got kids upstairs mm. playing. <laughs> um, the first one, is, this is interesting because I think this could lead somewhere with the podcast in general. Who, in your opinion, is also doing interesting stuff within our industry? That I should speak to. Can you think of anyone? <clears throat> right. Well, hopefully they're already on my list. But but you've got people doing different stuff. Um, we had the, for example, when we first went to Saint Anton. Mm. You know, uh, there was a lot of resistance for us going there, and the Aldberg Ski School was resistant mm. uh, for 
people coming into St. Anton from the outside. But I went and I met the director of the Alberta Ski School. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. I talked to him, yeah. suggested what we we're going to do. Can we work in partnership together? Yeah, let's do that. And a few years later, um, the Alberg Ski School started their own powder club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're getting um, people that um, are being influenced, for sure. Mm. Um, leaders, I can go back, um, you know, Ali Ross mm. in his time, you know, was out there doing things completely different. You know, Ali Ross is still teaching skiing, yeah. you know, in team. In fact, I have coffee every morning with Ali Ross <laughs> um, before we go our separate ways with our clients. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ali Ross, I would say, was probably the, the first person within Basie to move outside of the Basie organization mm-hmm. and start to do his own things. So Ali is still, you know, there doing stuff. Um, I would really, um, one of my main influences without doubt was John Shedden. Okay. John Shedden um, was the director of coaching for Snow Sports England. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he was a Basie trainer. Mm. You know, not many people know that. He okay. was a Basie trainer. Um, he wasn't happy with the, the, the manoeuvre-based teaching, mm-hmm. as we've already spoken about. So he had to um, move out of the association. He became director of coaching for the Snow Sports England. And he made a, a, a uh, you know, he really tried to push the difference between coaching and instructing. Mm. So it was all about coaching, working with clients, um, developing a skill-based uh, developing a skill-based model rather than a movement maneuver-based mm, model. Mm. So I'd definitely go and you know John Shedden I know is still around. He advises mm. a lot of um, Olympic associations. He's brought in as a consultant. Dennis Edwards um, was a Basie trainer. Yeah. Um, Dennis um, was the coach of the Snow Sports England ski team for a long time. He moved into coaching other sports. He's out there still. You know Dennis Edwards definitely. Uh, to interview so John Shedden Dennis Edwards Ali Ross is still teaching skiing mm-hmm. um, from a skiing point of view you know I think you'd have to um, you'd have to have a nose around to see you know anybody that's breaking the mould that's mm. moving into other areas um, yourself well I don't know about that we'll see we'll see but, uh, <laughs> interview interview uh, myself interview I might know so, a man who can do you that you know we had yeah. a, a little bit of a, a chat uh, before this podcast um, mm. talking about how you're working and stuff like that you know you've got um, you've got ski schools um, but you know people that are breaking the mold I mean t- ski schools still following the traditional route mm. you know um, you've got Warren Warren Smith that's true you yeah. know yeah. Um, Warren is based over in Verbier you know he wanted to he you know, was very involved in free riding mm. um, so I know that's quite tricky how that crosses into teaching people on holiday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a a love of free riding to see how he blends his balance between Mm. a love of free riding and, you know, working with clients. It's true. He's got an interesting club model, isn't he? He has, um, you know, he has very uh, specific um, philosophies about how he works with people as well. Mm. I know he does. You know, I've seen him at a lot of ski shows. Mm. Um, So we've got Warren, we've got Hugh Money. Mm. You know, Hugh Money, who um, founded the British Alpine Ski School. Hugh is definitely an interesting person to talk to. Hugh runs off the top of the British Alpine Ski School. He runs his own um, uh, ski performance clinics, okay. um, very sort of um, tailored ski performance clinics. So he's definitely worth um, talking to. There's a, a lot of younger ski instructors coming through 
um, you know, who are moving into interesting areas. There's um, Simon Christie. Right. Um, in the ports, I'm not Portslay. I'm in the Portslay here. <laughs> <laughs> Simon Christie in the Three Valleys. Okay, you know his skin structure has moved more into um, off-piste. Okay, so his, you know, he just skis off-piste all the time. Okay. He, he's working with clients in an off-piste environment similar to us. So there are there are definitely people out out there for mm. sure. You know, a lot of people. All right, um, for sure. Good. Well, my mind map is almost. Well, <laughs> this is pretty much done. Um, thank you. Would you like to give, uh, I want to make sure that everyone who comes on gives up their time, gets a bit of a plug-in for mm-hmm. what they're doing. Is there anything you'd like specifically to mention? Or Well, I, I would just say, if, you know, if going back to those three things about um, skiing with like-minded skiers, mm-hmm. um, uh, experiential learning, you know, travelling the, the world, looking for amazing places. But also for people that have, for one reason or another, feel that they are not improving. Mm. Now, why would somebody not improve? You know, you have to ask that question. Why? I mean, because improving should be a natural development. You know, we get better. It's a human thing. That's isn't it? Right. You do something, you get better at it. Mm. But we know a lot of people are getting stuck in their skiing. You know, that's why they go for lessons, to try to break out of that. Mm. You know, and I would just say to anybody listening to this podcast, think of how skiing is. You know, we talked about the open and closed environments. Think about your perception of skiing. You know, try to understand open sport where the environment is changing all the time. And then try to understand is is that how you are skiing? Are you mm. skiing in an open way? Or are you skiing in a closed way, which is a very repetitive, um, movement-based way mm. of skiing? Okay. Um, do you are you free to develop your own individual style? Because being you know, being involved in open sport, you're free to develop your own way of skiing. That's right. So you ski your own way. I've got loads more stories about that. <laughs> Not this time. <laughs> but that for podcast yeah, an- another time. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to, you've got to, you know, you need creativity. You need to be individual. Mm. This is absolutely key. And as you know, you know, with ski instructor training, people are often um, taught to ski mm-hmm. a particular oh, way so yeah, everybody's yeah. skiing the same way Robots. and then that moves into people being taught in ski schools they're all being taught to ski in a very robotic fashion mm-hmm. to fit into the model that the governing body has created mm-hmm. I'm hoping that's changed and it's changing mm-hmm. but everybody should be developing their own individual way of skiing so if you've come stuck if you got stuck in your skiing mm-hmm. there's a reason and it often revolves around the open mm. closed scenario. I try to give yeah. my instructors that freedom. <clears throat> I say to them at the start of the season, you know, there's no prescriptive way no. in our ski tool, no. in our ski school to <clears throat> to teach. I'm mm. not going to tell you how to teach your clients. Okay. You know what you know, mm-hmm. and you've got your own ideas about mm-hmm. how things work. And you, I want you to to, to, to um, translate those into mm-hmm. into into good good sessions. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to say to you the client's arms have to be here. Mm-hmm. or here mm-hmm. or you know they have to push in or whatever in a certain mm-hmm. way you know you do whatever works teach what is mm-hmm. in front of you um, you know Dan, that, that it, freedom yeah, gives, gives good and it's worth just mentioning one other philosophy which is very strong in our organisation um, <clears throat> which is judged and measured performance mm. and you know we're very focused on that you know where, again we might have a little session at the start of looking at judged and measured sports you know judged sports like gymnastics mm-hmm. Um, uh, gymnastics, figure skating, yeah, 
for example, compared diving. with diving, yeah. high diving, compared with measured sports, which is how much you lift, how fast you run, against the clock. you know, against the clock, it's measured. Mm. Um, and we try to get people understanding the difference between judged and measured sports, which mm. is absolutely key. And then I again I ask them, how do they feel skiing? Yeah, and most people say it's judged. Skiing Who's judging? judging? The instructor. Yeah. Ah, Whereas if yeah. so we measure performance, you know, can you get down and run in control? Can you cope with ice? You know, can you um, can you uh, descend? You know, uh, uh, an off-piece sloping control. You know, can you go down the central mogul field? Can you select moguls that you can ski in control and get down? You know, so and this is a big mindset because people, um, and when you're judged. Yeah. You become very self-conscious. Sure. So this will this will hit home with a lot of people that might be listening to this podcast. Are you self-conscious? When you ski, are you self-conscious of how you ski? If you are, you're involved in a judged sport. Mm. Turn it into a measured sport and your self-consciousness will disappear completely. Because it's all about mm. getting down the mountain in control. You know, and skiing in control. It's not about how you look. Or it's not about adhering to somebody else's viewpoint. Yeah, you know, and um, so we talk about a lot of judge and measure sport. That is yeah. very interesting. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. Even just for that mm-hmm. little snippet, I'm glad yeah. we had this conversation. That's fantastic. Yeah, you know, we often say, um, just think of um, another sport that takes place. Two sports which take place on a similar surface and use similar equipment: figure skating and ice hockey. Mm. They both take place on ice. They both use ice (laughs) ice skates and they're completely different sports. Now, if you've been trained as a figure skater, Mm -hmm. can you imagine playing ice hockey? And if you've been trained as an ice hockey player, can you imagine going into a figure skating contest? Well, having having been formerly married to a figure skater, I can tell you it wrecks your head, that that whole concept of judgment. Is uh, your, is your perception of skiing, figure skating, or ice hockey now for us all mountain skiing is definitely in the ice hockey bracket yeah. because it's an open sport yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh? so we're teaching people to become ice hockey players with skis on their feet wow yeah, yeah, yeah. whereas no I'm, I don't want to take anything away from figure skating because boy oh, well, yeah. yeah amazing yeah you know but it's as it comes back to this open and closed mm. stuff you know figure skating is closed very skillful mm. amazingly skillful yeah Ice hockey is open, as skillful, mm. just very, very different. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Where can people find out more information about what you do? Well, they can just go straight onto the internet. We have um, our site, www.snowworks.com. Mm-hmm. Um, so straight onto Snowworks, we also have numerous face, uh, Facebook pages, uh, Twitter, Instagram. So just Snowworks, S N O. W. W. I was going to say, there's only one W, people. Oh, okay, yes, w. yeah. Not, it's, um, yeah, snow works with one W in the com. middle. Perfect. And if you want to learn open, that's the place to come. I've had a fantastic discussion mm. with you. Thank you. It's a Great. pleasure to meet you. Excellent. Thank Thanks. you, sir. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, Thank hope you enjoy your time here. Pleasure to chat. Great. Thank you.